0: Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration?
1: Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special podcast. I am Gabriel So, and I am super excited to have the amazing, the awesome Claire Thomas here as my special guest today. She is doing a lot of really cool stuff. Okay. Apart from her website, The Kitchy Kitchen, where you can find it at thekitchykitchen.com, you can also find her cookbook, The Kitchy Kitchen. She has a television series called Food for Thought with Claire Thomas. Now, in my opinion, she is rocking it. She is truly on a mission to help us home cooks amp up our everyday daily dinner routines. Thank you, Claire, for being with us today.
0: Oh my gosh, my pleasure. What an introduction, my goodness.
1: <laughs> well, Claire, you truly have a love and affinity for food. How did you discover this as a passion for yourself?
0: Wow. Well, I guess two things, really. My mom's an amazing cook. My whole family, they're all really, really wonderful cooks and bakers. Nothing fancy. They weren't necessarily creative, meaning they didn't create any new recipes, but they would kill an Ina Garten or Martha Stewart recipe. So I grew up eating really good food. And when you grew up in a family where the food's really good, you don't usually feel the need to cook. There's so much good food around you. So I would just eat as much food as possible and avoid doing the dishes as as much as possible. But I always grew up loving food, and it's something that I've always been really passionate about and just enjoyed, but it wasn't until I got a job just out of college in development, which means my job was to try to find interesting stories to turn into television shows and films and things like that, and I was a big history nerd. I was a history major in college, and so I'd always turn to history because I always think that it's the most interesting source for material like that. And I sort of fell across food history. I read this article. It's in one of my favorite magazines called Gastronomica. And it was an article about how Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper is neither kosher nor Aramaic. (laughs) So it it like misses it on both accounts. And I thought that was so funny because the Passover meal is kind of a set script. Like everyone knows what that is. So it seems sort of a weird place to take artistic license. And as I read the article, it talked about how he actually just put his favorite food in the painting, which is eel with orange slices, which... I thought that does not sound Italian. I for some reason he's Florentinian so I expected pasta or you know something like that and then it occurred to me that oh he probably I don't remember the exact date that he was painting this but you know the age of exploration just started so probably didn't have pasta they definitely didn't have tomatoes they did not have corn They didn't have so many of the things we think about as being integral to the Italian canon of cuisine. And so it sent me on this weird journey of like, what was Italian cuisine before the age of exploration? Just like really weird nerdy side projects and the answer is Greek, it was Greek food so I ended up just kind of falling in love with food history. I found it to be kind of the closest thing to a time machine because if you understand how people ate you understand how they lived, their economy their environment, the politics of the time. Some of the funniest and oldest laws on the book for major cities like Venice for instance are actually food related something people have seemed to be historically very persnickety about so you get a great sense of I guess people's personality through history and what I love about it too is it's something unescapable about the human condition you know we have to eat so I love how it makes me feel connected to the past and the people who lived in the past because a lot of times we can think of them as you know figures in oil paintings with funny wigs or you know that kind of thing it's cool to think of them as real people who had you know very strong opinions and some of them liked their food salty some of it liked it spicy you know that kind of thing
1: cool. So, I guess this is how naturally you developed the Kitchy Kitchen blog.
0: Yeah, it's so funny thinking about where my blog started and where it is now. I started the blog as sort of a little fun place to just put my creativity. My job was kind of boring and my mom saw I was struggling and, you know, at this point I was really full-blown geeking out over food history and recipe testing and that kind of thing. And she said, why don't you start a food blog? Which wasn't really a thing like four years ago as much as it is now. And being a nerd who didn't understand how the internet worked, I thought, oh, then okay, I have to prep everything. I have to have like really great recipes and learn how to shoot, and I put all this pressure on myself, not realizing that the internet is like, you know, you're a tree falling in the middle of a forest. You can fail in anonymity for very long. So it was great. But so I started the blog, and it was so funny. I learned how to shoot food photography by basically just picking up a camera and. Shooting it and staring at the picture and trying to figure out what, what was wrong with it. And it was like basically trial and error. I'd look at the photos that I liked. And once I figured out, my dad's actually like kind of an amateur photographer, he loves photography. It all came down to lighting. And so we would have conversations about where the light was coming from and what exactly it was doing. And then I started noticing food styling. And I was able to basically, you know, quit my job that I had there and become a full-time food stylist. And the blog, you know, was just pretty interesting. It started out very pretentious. (laughs) So if you go too far back, the food's kind of over the top. And I think I was trying a little too hard. I was trying to appear, you know, very sophisticated. And it's funny, but once I started the show, that's when the big transition happened When I started the show, I realized I had to translate my recipes into a way that felt really accessible. And what are people cooking on, you know, a weekday night? No, no one's going to spend a million years making anything. I don't spend a million years making anything. I'm actually very lazy in the kitchen. So, for me, it sort of changed my path, and since then, all my food has been, my nickname for it is Lazy Person Elegance. It looks really impressive, but it actually is not hard (laughs) to do whatsoever.
1: You know what, and that's what I was going to say, your food is so accessible and it's something that people actually will try. Whereas, you know, there's these cookbooks out there. They're beautiful. They're amazing cookbooks made by like these famous, amazing chefs. But there's no way that I'm going to know how to like totally debone a fish and like figure out how to do all that stuff out on my own. <laughs> so I think you have definitely hit a chord with your audience for sure.
0: Well, it's funny. There's still stuff for me that I'm intimidated by. Like there's like I, it's funny when I sat down to do the cookbook, so that the cookbook was a two-year process. And when, so when I first sat down, and this was probably two and a half years ago, I looked at my blog and thought, okay, what are the most popular, best recipes on the blog that I definitely want to include in the cookbook? And I looked at and on my blog, I'm pretty sure it was like 80% sweets. And then the only meat that I had was like shrimp and bacon and then lots of cocktails. It was very i was like oh this is funny how there's not like actually that much savory content
1: you should do a dessert cookbook because your sweet pizza and like your bacon candy
0: pig candy oh yeah pig candy's a thing
1: that's the stuff right there
0: oh that's so funny i did that on the today show for my first big promotion of the cookbook and it was really funny how sometimes i can't tell if it's a hard sell or not because i think some people think like uh Candy bacon, I don't know. But then they try it and they're obsessed with it, especially if you give them a beer.
1: Anything goes well with a beer, especially with candy bacon. Yes. (laughs) Well, you kind of alluded to this earlier. Were you always a good cook? Because, you know, sometimes as home cooks, we get intimidated and we also have dinner or kitchen disasters. Like this past weekend, I was glazing a ham And it was a simple glaze. It was just like brown sugar and some vinegar. Mixed it up and I put it all over the ham. But literally five minutes after I put it in the oven, the glaze had all fallen off the ham. It was bubbling like crazy and spilling all over the oven. And the entire house smelled like burnt sugar for the past two days. So please help me feel a little bit better about myself and tell me that you too have some food disasters in your past.
0: I'm so sorry, Gabriel, but I'm perfect. I've never messed up in the yes no oh my god of course so much i'm the opening line of my cookbook is have you cried yet you know like literally so i've I've had my fair share of kitchen disasters and still do it's funny like when i recipe test most of the time i've gotten it down where i understand recipe structure really well at this point and so it's funny this is sneaky i probably should not be sharing this but I have probably a core group of recipes and I use those recipes and reinvent them over and over and over again. And so that when you understand sort of a core recipe, you can make it look completely different and no one's the wiser. But you know that all you did was tweak sort of the flavors and you use the exact same technique. So like, for instance, if I was braising chicken, you could do that French with, you know, white wine and chanterelles and thyme and you know some really lovely moments like that, like maybe some walnuts. And- and currants or something. But then if I wanted that to feel Asian, I could use sake and shiso and, you know, other vegetables and things like that. Or like the easiest one would be like, yeah, like mussels, like steamed mussels, you can do a million different ways, but it's the exact same concept over and over again. But every now and then I do get overly ambitious and decide, okay, I'm gonna break out, I'm gonna try something. And so the one place that I've seen the most sort of kitchen disasters is with attempts at gluten-free and vegan baking because it's just chemistry. It's straight up chemistry. And I once tried to make a flourless, I don't know, do you guys have a BJ's in Canada? It's where I used to eat in middle school all the time. (laughs) It's like a pizza parlor. They have a thing on the menu called the pizookie. It's a pizza cookie. So it's a giant cookie. So it's a chocolate chip cookie that's cooked in like a pizza plate, and it's gooey in the middle, and they start with a scoop of ice cream on top. It's wonderful. It's just like how I described it. And I thought, oh, how cool would it be to do like a gluten-free vegan version of that, almost like a flourless chocolate cake, but a chocolate chip cookie. And I thought, like, oh, this this won't be that hard. I had soup. I had gluten-free vegan chocolate chip cookie soup the first three times I tried to make this thing. It just would not come together. Oh, my gosh.
1: Did it taste good, though?
0: It tasted good. But it's like, I don't know if this is working so well. So, you know, and I finally cracked it, but it took quite a few attempts. And in the beginning, you know, like I said, like my mom's a home cook, my aunt's a home cook. Like I couldn't call up Ina Garten and be like, hey, I don't understand how to make your mac and cheese help. So I just kind of, you know, sort of toiled away trying to figure it out. So in the beginning, there's a lot of experimentation and definitely a learning curve. But the good news is that no matter how often you mess up, there's always Thai food. So that's kind of what I live by. You know, if I don't feel like cooking or what I'm cooking did not work out, I will just order some pad cu and everything is better for it.
1: (laughs) Right. And that is so comforting to know, because I think home cooks have this illusion that, you know, every time we cook, it has to be something that's good and that's amazing where you know most of the times if you're trying something new it's going to take a few tries and it's going to take you know a couple of attempts even if you're following a recipe for you to get down the techniques and get down sort of you know figuring everything out
0: 100% and actually like one of my things is I do a lot of entertaining it's funny I'm at that age in my life where I'm not meal planning yet. So when I am cooking, I'm either cooking something that I'm eating over the sink or on my couch in sweatpants, or it's for an event. It's for like my friends who are coming over for a small dinner party or something like that. And what I tell people whenever they like come to a party I'm throwing and they ask like, Oh, so how should I do my event or whatever? I always tell them like, don't ever try something the first time at a party. It's just Murphy's Law, it's not
1: gonna work, ever. You hear people tell you this, but it never fails. Like, I would be the first person to try something new. If I'm gonna bring something to a dinner party, I am gonna bring something that I've just tried. And I know that everybody says don't do it, but I don't know what, it, it's something within us that we wanted.
0: It's this need to impress, you know, we wanna be fancy and cool in front of our friends. My aunt has this cookbook called Cooking for Compliments, which is amazing, just because of the title. Because at least it's open about it, like cooking for those compliments. But, yeah, I think that that's part of it. I mean, honestly, if you want to cook for compliments, if you want to impress people when you go to a party, just bring the dessert. Because people will love a mediocre dessert and will not forgive a mediocre salad. So, you know, you will never get a high five like, oh, my gosh, amazing salad. That never happened at a party.
1: I'm going to take that tip and I'm going to just bring desserts from now on.
0: No, sir, you could bring box brownies. I'm not kidding. If you bring like box brownies, people be like, oh, I love box brownies. Thank you so much. This is fantastic. Like No one would be mad at you. Everyone would be totally happy about it.
1: Well, here at the dinner special we like to talk with our food heroes about dinner dishes that are special to them. So can you share with us a dinner dish that is special to you and why is it so special to you?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. Let's see, there's two ways I could go for with this. I could go with just like what I really, really like, or I could go with the nostalgia factor. I mean, if I went for nostalgia, my birthday dinner. So I don't know. This is a common thing, I think. But in my family, if it's your birthday, you get to choose what we're doing for dinner. And so my dad, it's tacos and root beer floats. For me, it's roast chicken and roasted potatoes. And I just love roast chickens. It hits that nostalgia place in like a crazy way. It's so good. And I love, love, love roast chicken, especially the dark meat. I'm a dark meat girl. People don't understand the beauty of chicken thighs. They always like are going for the breast. And I'm always like, all right, cool. I'm just going to be over here with my like entirety, like five chicken thighs. They're so succulent and delicious. So that's probably the most comforting when I think of comfort food. In terms of just what I like, I mean, I made something for Thanksgiving that is my new favorite thing in life, which is turquetta. It's basically, I took turkey thighs and pretended they were porchetta. So I just, you know, rubbed it with the same seasoning you would to do porchetta and then cooked it in the same manner. So low and slow, bound up with a little bit of white wine. And I got like the crispiest skin. The flavor was really, really good. And to me, it's because it's just the boneless turkey thighs. It's not like a full-blown bird it's a lot more accessible, and you could do this with chicken thighs. It'd be very tiny, though. They'd be these really cute little packages, but delicious. But no, I would totally make torquetta again for dinner.
1: Now, is this recipe gonna be in a follow-up cookbook or on your blog?
0: It's on the blog now.
1: Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm gonna totally check it out.
0: You gotta check it out.
1: (laughs) If you made the porchetta, and you could invite three famous people, who would you invite to share these tiny packets of deliciousness?
0: I know who I'm supposed to say, right? Like, I know I'm supposed to be like Joan of Arc, Jesus, and the president. But unfortunately, okay, so it's just, I know I'm supposed to say that. But I'm going to go with who I actually would want to have a dinner party with. God, you know what's embarrassing is I have like a really long list of fantasy friends and double date partners. But I would love to have Amy and David Sedaris over. And then if we have to have like one extra person to balance it out for four, well, I have a weird crush on Nigella. She's like my favorite person and she's amazing.
1: You're not alone because she is ultimately like my first and ultimate like food person crush. She's amazing.
0: <laughs> she's beautiful and so intelligent. And she's one of the only people who can use the word like deliquescent and not sound like a totally pretentious person. But anyone else tried to say that they would get, you know, booed out of the room. But no, I've always admired her. She's very good at what she does. She's passionate about it and very, very intelligent. If I didn't go with her, then I'd probably go with Tony Bourdain. It's so funny. I have this penchant for loving kind of cranky older food guys. Like all of my favorite food writers are kind of in that same realm. Like Tony Bourdain and Jeffrey Steingarten and Mark Kolanski are all my favorite food writers. But I'm pretty sure none of them would like to hang out with me because I'm like a
1: perky, like,
0: oh. Like, let's eat a donut. Like, you know.
1: Just... But then part of the fun would be trying to make them squirm. You know, like.
0: Oh, that would be a grumpy dinner party. And I'd try all three of those guys. And it, I would just be like this the whole time. And I'd keep just pouring whiskey and being like, okay, just keep talking. I'll just stand over here in a corner listening, you know. But I love all those guys. They're amazing writers. And especially, I mean, Mark Kurlansky has such an amazing knack for taking something like. So two of his most famous books are Cod and then Salt. And those are hard sells, a subject matter. So the fact that he's able to write, it's so fascinating and so engaging and it's fun to read and it gets people into history and food in a way that I just think is fantastic. You know, I have talked to people who've never been interested in food history or known about it and they've read one of his books and been hooked. So, you know, I love that style of writing. I'm so impressed by it. For home
1: cooks, I mean, I love to cook. But sometimes, you know, after a long day, you've been at work for like nine or 10 hours, you have kids, and they're raising a ruckus, they might not value or appreciate cooking dinner. So how can we make it more fun for them? Like, is there a song that sort of or an album that you put on that just like gets you in the groove for like, you know, cooking and getting down?
0: Well, what's funny for me is I do love music, but when I am cooking or in my car or something like that, I actually listen to podcasts and talk radio. I listen to NPR, which I don't think a kid would really appreciate. (laughs) Unless it's Prairie Home Companion, they might dig that. But when I was a kid growing up, we'd listen to a lot of, this is also going to date me because then everyone will know what decade I was born in. But we listened to a lot of B-52s and And then early Madonna. Those were the things we'd listen to, and it was fun. I mean, I think the big thing for me when I was a kid in the kitchen with my mom was that she'd give me a little task, and additionally, I mean, for me, I wasn't particularly picky. It wasn't hard for me to want to eat something, but I know people struggle with that so much. I actually started doing a series on my blog called Mom Monday, where every Monday I would post a recipe that was mom friendly. So moms would eat it, but then kids would eat it too. So I actually looked up, I Googled top 10 kid favorites and I did, you know, burgers and mac and cheese and grilled cheese and all the kid favorites, but then snuck vegetables in there. And a lot of times, as long as it looks like what their expectation is, they'll eat it. You know, if it looks weird to them, they won't go for it. But so for me, I think having, you know, fun music, giving them a real task, like a real activity. I mean, For me, I grew up around open flames. And when I was six years old, my dad, you know, handed me an X-Acto knife for a school project. Don't cut yourself. You can. It's an open blade. Don't do it. And I'd be like, okay. And then I never did because I just was super duper careful about it. So not that I'm saying to do that, but I'm just saying that I think, you know, explaining to kids the process so they understand what's really happening and then telling them why it's important to be patient, why it's important to pay attention and then let them be part of the process. I think that that'll be a really a really good way of engaging them in the dinner because they're going to be more likely to eat it if they made it. They're going to be proud of it and excited about it. And I also noticed a really good way of getting picky eaters to try to eat something is if you give them the illusion of choice. And an easy way of doing that is to know, okay, I have ingredients to make two different types of things, you know, because it's like when you have a pantry, it's pretty easy to do. I can either do fried rice or I can do pasta, exact same ingredients, but like, one do I, you know, am I pushing here? And you just ask the kid, you know, okay, which do you feel like more, this one or this one? And then the kid feels like, oh, I have agency in this. (laughs) And, you know, they they pick one and they're going to be happier campers when it comes down to it. So. But no, it is something I'm exciting. My whole family, we're in the first round of babies. So my cousin has a little boy. My other cousin is having a child too really soon. And so it's all starting, all of those conversations about getting kids to eat and what they're going to eat.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just had, we just had our first four months ago. So it's...
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of work. (laughs) But it's so rewarding. And it's so fun. And it's a great time.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: At the dinner special here, we have a section called The Pressure Cooker, okay? So here I'm gonna ask you six fast and fun questions that listeners wanna know your answers to. Are you ready?
0: I'm so ready. <laughs> okay, so
1: just give me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Which food shows or cooking shows do you watch?
0: Oh, no reservations.
1: Name some food blogs or food websites that home cooks have to know about besides The Kitchy Kitchen.
0: That'd be so horrible if I was like The Kitchy Kitchen there are no others. No, Joy the Baker. She's a buddy of mine and she's amazing. And then Whitney A. My girlfriend Whitney is a sommelier and is amazing at putting together events and pairing wine and food. So those are definitely two of my favorite. Also, A Cozy Kitchen is another favorite. And there's so many. Oh my gosh, I could just list like a million. But those are the first three that popped to mind.
1: Awesome. Who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter that make you happy?
0: Oh my goodness. So on Pinterest, I follow Bonnie Sang. She has like a million followers, but she's a photographer and she has so many great little pics. Also Jenny Kane. She's a designer here in LA who I love. And she's, she has, she's so chic. She just picks beautiful minimalist items. Instagram. There's a few people I just followed that I thought were really, really special. Oh, Nectar and Stone was one that I follow. She's a patisserie person. She makes these just ridiculous, ridiculous confections. And then I guess also my friend Jonathan from Compartes. He's a chocolatier and he always posts photos from his chocolate making process, which is, I mean, you can't not be happy and looking at chocolate getting made. So.
1: <laughs> yes. What is something all home cooks should have in their pantry?
0: Pantry items. I'd say for me, sriracha, because so full disclosure on weekday nights, when I'm just lazy, my favorite dinner to make is scrambled eggs. (laughs) I love eggs in general, but my favorite scrambled egg, which is completely just a pantry thing because I had nothing in my kitchen. I did scrambled eggs with a little bit of sweet soy sauce, whatever soft herbs I had. So basil, cilantro, green onion, whatever I had, and then sriracha. And that was it. And it it was just the best thing. It was so good.
1: Cool. And what's one ingredient you cannot live without? Butter. Butter makes it better?
0: <laughs> Brown butter makes it much better.
1: Well, I mean, you already list a few, but what are a few cookbooks that has made your life better?
0: Oh, well, I mean, the joy of cooking is important in sort of an encyclopedic way, right? I mean, it doesn't have that heart, but it's just such a great reference. I collect vintage cookbooks. I have a couple dozen now. They're so fun to me. The one that I actually cook out of the most, though, is called The Shaker Cookbook, Not by Bread Alone. You can actually find it all over eBay. It is not a difficult vintage cookbook to find. But vintage cookbooks have a habit of being poorly edited. Like, a lot of times, the recipes haven't been tested at all. A lot of times, they're presented in paragraph format and they will actually say sometimes like you should know how to do this shrug like literally like under i read i was reading a recipe for a welsh rarebit, and they listed cheese and toast you should know how to make this like but shaker cookbook is filled with amazing pie recipes and really it's a great sort of like anthropological look at the shaker community and their approach to food you know it has titles like Sister Amelia's Strawberry Flumery, which uh, I don't know what that is, but it sounds magical.
1: Yeah, and that would never be a title like today.
0: No, no, I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but it's fun and I love it and I cook from it all the time and the recipes are really well edited and they've been tested a million times and, you know, I've I've been very impressed. If you're going to start a vintage cookbook collection, that's actually a pretty good one to start with.
1: Thanks. So you survived the pressure cooker. Congratulations. (laughs) I don't know. It got a little bit intense there, but it's all good. You know what? Thank you, Claire, for taking the time to come speak with me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Ditto. Thank you so much. This was so fun.
1: You're all over social media. What's the best way for listeners to keep posted on what you're up to?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, my YouTube channel, I post on my YouTube channel three times a week. If you guys are looking for things between showings of Food for Thought and between the blog, you can always find some fun new content there. And, you know, I do everything from quick little tips to full-blown recipes. I did a pie episode that was the length of an episode of Food for Thought. It was like 22 minutes, but we get in there, so it's really about the pie. But no, I definitely would say my YouTube channel. And then otherwise, Instagram, if you at mention me or say hello. I'll say hi back. I follow a lot of my own followers and, you know, I love reaching out to you guys. So, yeah, please find me out there.
1: Awesome. And guys, don't forget to check out Claire Thomas's cookbook, The Kitchy Kitchen. It's filled with awesome recipes to turn up your everyday dinner culinary routines. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and iTunes. And, of course, on Claire's amazing website, thekitchykitchen.com. Thank you, Claire, for being with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Oh, Thank you so much, Gabriel. Thank you so
1: much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking.